But we're going to get into this right now. It's on the prophet Micah, which came just after Jonah. And uh, I told him in Wesley and Rome, if I were a prophet back then and all this uh, just barbaric things that were going on, I'd almost be ready to commit suicide. But a prophet was sent from God to try to see that these people would change their ways. So little is known about the prophet Micah beyond what is in the book itself. He was from a small town in southern Judah and prophesied sometime around 700 B.C., about the same time as Jonah, who Pastor Gary preached about last week. His writings, or prophecies, honed in on the social injustices during that time, especially in the small towns and villages in the region where he hailed from. He was very sensitive to the oppressive treatment of the poor and the worship of idols as opposed to true worship. He preached both before and after the fall of Israel's northern kingdom. Many of his works are strikingly similar to his counterpart, Isaiah, who is well known as the, the Prince of the Prophets, my favorite, as a matter of fact lashing out at the wickedness of the rulers of that time and showing the Lord's wrath and judgment for their oppression and idolatry. But then he envisions the Lord's gracious love and forgiveness when true repentance, when I say true repentance, it means from the heart, is shown and how Zion will have even greater glory in the future because of the coming of the Messiah. Chapter 1, if you want to follow with me, I don't know where Micah is in your Bibles there. I'm not sure what page it's on. But while you're looking, Wayne, if you'll bring me up my book that I left there, I would appreciate it. Chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that Micah is addressing both the northern and southern kingdoms, but is primarily focused on the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is located. The scene is set in a courtroom in which the judge, in this case the Lord, is a witness against you. But instead of an earthly courtroom, the Lord is speaking directly from his holy temple. The sin of Israel is so great that the Lord must come out of his place and come down to judge the people up close and personal. Can you imagine? Now here's a people, the chosen people, the chosen children of God to go to the promised land. He gave them any, every miracle imaginable to get them there, fed them, kept them, and here they are. They haven't turned really against him, but they're doing everything their way. Does that remind you of a country we live in? Where we're doing everything our way? Me, myself, and I, we'll, we'll take the Bible and use it as we see fit. Not as God tells us, but 
as we comprehend it. Not so good. Not so good. The Lord's first charge against them is their blatant worshiping of idols, placing direct emphasis on Samaria and Jerusalem. God promises his destruction of the northern kingdom, followed by the southern kingdom. Exile to all, no strings attached, no favoritism shown. Can you imagine being exiled? Now, suppose we are all exiled to another country. We're not looking at a 30-day sentence or 60-day sentence. We're looking at decades. That's what these people had to do. They were, they were exiled for decades as punishment for disobeying the Lord. You'd think that would be enough to get them back in good standing. But it wasn't. Chapter 2 begins with Micah addressing a familiar topic, Israel's social injustices. He gives the image of the rich and powerful plotting in their beds at night as to how to increase their wealth the following day. They covet the fields and take them by violence and also houses and seize them thus oppressing man and his house and his inheritance. Can you imagine you own property and your fellow countrymen come and take it away? And not just take it away, kill you, torture you, whatever, your own countrymen. It's barbaric. It's unimaginable. It says, when the farmers fell into financial debt, possibly because of crop failure or drought, the wealthy would swoop down like buzzards and steal their land from them. You know, I wasn't going to do this little story. Sometimes Pastor Gary does little stories to prove a point. We lived on a farm for years up on Bayshore Road. My father was a farmer. We didn't own that farm. He was a tenant farmer, meaning that he worked there rent-free, okay? While living there, <laughs> some things happened that I just, I couldn't believe it. And my father just took it and took it and took it. Here was a landowner who, we had a snowstorm in the mid-60s. Snow drifts up to the telephone wires. Took 21 hours for David Bramble's crew to dig out our lane, which was a mile and a half from the main road. Did the owner, landowner take care of that? Oh no, my father did. When it came time for the lane to be scraped because of the thaw after all the snow, and you had ruts this deep and couldn't even hardly get in or out. Did the landowner take care of it? Oh no, my father had to do it. We had to take trips to and from the bus sometimes by tractor and wagon across the neighbor's field. And I remember one day in early spring when those ruts were at their worst, my parents couldn't even come get me from the bus. I had to walk up the lane from school, and I was fuming. And here came the landowner's family and said, can we give you a ride? I'm like, 
Yeah. Oh, I know you just can't wait to take over for your father when he retires. I said, I can't wait to get off of this hole. Oh, you don't mean that. I said, the H.I. don't. And here I am, promise kept. They weren't oppressive, but the oppression came with the fact that my father was so poor that when he left that farm without buildings being maintenance to keep up on the buildings, my father had to do it. If the equipment failed, my father had to fix it. The landowner had nothing to do with it. When he died, he was penniless. Penniless. And I'm not saying that all of it was the landowner's fault, but a good bit of it was. Not the oppression you see here, but bad enough. And these farmers who once owned their land received pay for their crops and who had their children as heirs to their land were forced to become slave laborers working for food and shelter. <laughs> working for food and shelter on land that was originally yours. God promised, promised severe punishment for this terrible sin and told them there would be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Micah next reminds the Israelites that even though the Lord had raised up prophets to warn them of coming judgment, they would not listen. He said in verse 6, If the Israelites are not willing to listen to true prophets sent from God, who then will they listen to? Micah says, If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. And believe me, there's probably a lot of people in this country that would love to see a prophet for wine and beer. I can remember the day when I would have probably liked that too. But things have changed. Thank God. Then, as if Micah has been given another revelation from the Lord, he changes his tune by telling Israel of the restoration God has planned for her. Showing his love. Unchanging, unfailing, unconditional love for his children, no matter what. Incredible. Why do you suppose he made such an abrupt turnaround in his message? Perhaps it is the Lord's way of telling Israel, it is not too late, which is what we're trying to be told now. Not too late, United States. I'm giving you chance after chance after chance. You won't listen. Do you hear an echo there? If you do, I will forgive you, he says. These words are similar to the words the Lord used when he told Solomon in 2 Chronicles. If, I love those two words, if and then he uses here, and they mean a ton. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Are we listening? Are we truly listening? Not yet. 
In chapter 3, Micah uses his strongest language yet. And this is what Pastor Gary talked about last week. Micah saw these things happen. And this is absolutely deplorable. He says, You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people, and this happened, and the flesh from their bones, and who also eat the flesh of my people, my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. That's unimaginable. These so-called leaders have no sympathy, care or compassion, and are totally insensitive to the plight of their own countrymen and women. I hope to God we never get that bad. It's bad enough across the bay right now, wouldn't you say? Micah further depicts Israel's depraved leaders when he says in verse 6, Her heads judge for bribe, oh, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. These very same leaders who are so spiritually, spiritually blind, arrogant, and misguided that they have the audacity to say, is not the Lord among us? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Or in our modern day society, they might say, this ship is unsinkable. We got this. No, not, nobody can touch us. That's just what God wants to hear. We can't be touched on this journey from England to New York. Well, 2,000 people were touched. How about 9-11? We can't be attacked. We got the Atlantic. We have the Pacific. We can't be touched. We're the most powerful nation on earth. Guess what? We were infiltrated. And 3,000 came down. Or even a few weeks ago, when our leaders said, the United States has the most powerful military machine in the world. No one wants to face us. I hope and pray that person doesn't have to eat those words. Just when you think that you've got it made, that you're on top of the world, and you get that arrogant, prideful attitude and like to use it with your mouth, the Lord says, just a minute, buddy. Cool it. I got this, not you. And the Lord has a way of dealing with people like this. As chapter 4 begins, it's almost as if Micah has prayed for a break from all these terrible pro prophecies. A 180-degree turn from all the hatred, depravity, and greed. He takes us to the, to the millennial, a thousand-year kingdom, the time when Jesus will rule the world with justice and righteousness. This is the only way to, to, to get it right, Jesus coming back. He said, it will also be a time of total peace, as they, the nations, shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah talking again. But before that comes, 
there will be a time of hardship and discipline as Israel will suffer at the hands of the nations of the world. But God will punish those nations and turn ravaged Israel into the most powerful people on earth. How about that? <laughs> they had done every sin imaginable, worship everybody but God, and yet he's telling them, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to bring you back. But they still wouldn't go his way. <laughs> Chapter 5 gives us a break. This is why I picked Micah of the three that I was given to. It tells us of the coming of the Messiah. Something I truly, I know we all are looking forward to in a couple of weeks. It says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. He takes the reins. He's in control whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be their peace. Not going to make our own. He will give us peace. That's the good news. Verses 7 through 9 sound as if Micah is foretelling the trials that Israel will endure but triumph over even up to the present when he says, and the remnant of Jacob shall be like a young lion among flocks of sheep. Your hands shall be lifted against your adversaries and all your enemy, enemies shall be cut off. The rest of the chapter tells of how God will chastise and then cleanse Israel, punishing the nations who want to see her annihilated. Can you imagine this barbaric nation who did everything they could to everything against the Lord they possibly could, <laughs> willingly, and yet he's saying, you're my, you're my children, I chose you, I'm going to bring you back, but you've got to come through for me got to come through. In chapter 6, Micah pleads the Lord's case against Israel again, much like the courtroom scenes where he says, Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. He didn't say he would punish them or he'd wipe them off the face there. He said, I will contend with Israel. We know who the winner will be in that, don't we? The Lord states his claim of all his acts of kindness and love for Israel, and yet all she gives is burnt offerings which are unaccept unacceptable to him. The Lord wants Israel's love and affection returned and for them to behave righteously. All he wants is for us to give back what he gives us. And yet we still do it our way. You notice I always say our because we in Israel are one in the same. Make no mistake about it. We're one in the same. Micah states the Lord's case beautifully when he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, 
to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. But Israel failed to listen or comprehend, continued their acts of wickedness, and was condemned with failed crops and hunger. Wicked, corrupt, and selfish leadership has tragic results. And God is justified in his condemnation and judgment in punishing his people. How many times in the last two to three years have you heard the words, the worst hurricane ever, the worst tornadoes ever, the worst wildfires on record? How many times have you heard that? The atrocities of mass shootings over and over and over until it's become a part of our society. Oh, yeah, it's going to happen again tomorrow. What are, you, what, what are we going to do about it? Bad stuff. God help us. God have mercy on us. In chapter 7, Micah begins with a woe is me type lament, and rightfully so. He offers almost no hope when he says in verse 2, The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. Can you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? God gave every chance to those two cities to produce down to one person who was righteous, and he would, he would uh, for, forgive them. They couldn't do that, and he wiped them off the face of the earth. No one is righteous, not even one. No one can trust anyone anymore. Man against man, daughter against mother, brother against brother. Look across the bay again. How many are going to have? 350, 400 deaths? They don't care. They're killing. It doesn't matter who they are. Family, friend, it doesn't matter. It says, but then finally, in chapter 7, there is a, oh, it says about how no one can trust any, anyone. The other night in Becky's class down here for these young kids, I said to him, I said, you know, I said, in the Bible, it says, no man should be alone. In this, in this world we live in, you need a friend, a friend you can trust and rely on and tell your innermost feelings to. We need that more than ever, someone in our lives that we can say, thank you for being a friend. Thank you for being my trustworthy, loyal friend besides him. But then finally in chapter 7, there's a glimmer of hope when he says on Israel's behalf, do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. Okay, now they're coming around. Now they're coming around. Enough is enough. We're with you. We need you. We're back with you. Case closed, they would say. If they were in a courtroom, may this case close. It says, because, it says, um, though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. 
I will see his righteousness, finally. Then Micah ends his book with his final prophecy of affirmation and hope for deliverance for God's people in the future. This salvation will be the fulfillment of a promise. We know God doesn't break promises. God made many centuries ago, he says in verses 18 to 20, Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. We're yours again. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. You will be true to Jacob. And show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. What a promise. What a promise kept. The promise stated again in chapter 5, leading up to December 25th. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then, for then, his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Wow. In two weeks... God comes down and shows his ultimate, unconditional love for us in the birth of Jesus Christ, who would then begin a journey to save the world from all sin and iniquity by suffering the worst form of sacrifice imaginable. And why? Because he loves us that much. That much. As we move forward to that day when God comes down, let us all resign ourselves to practice daily the two most important commandments that he gave us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are none greater than these. As Pastor Gary would say in wrapping this up, I want to read from you. I have four devotions that I read from every morning at 5 a.m. in my easy chair with my cat. And this one from Charles Swindoll is called, Good Morning, Lord, Can We Talk? And when December the... It's called the gift that keeps on giving. You all have have a pencil or pen and some paper with you? I have have some homework for you to do. To end this, to wrap it up, as Gary would say. If you have a paper and pencil or pen, grab it. And I'll go through these slowly. Chuck Swindoll says, although it may be a little ahead of schedule... It's not too early to give some things away 
this Christmas. Not just on Christmas Day, but during the days leading up to December the 25th. We could call these daily gifts our Christmas projects. Maybe one per day from now till then. Some of these you might already be doing. Bless you. Some of these you may need to do. And I hope you will. Number one, mend a quarrel. Two, seek out a forgotten friend. Three, dismiss suspicion. Four, hug someone tightly and whisper, I love you. Number five, forgive an enemy. That's a toughie. Number six, be gentle and patient with an angry person. I said that one twice in Wesley Chapel. Seven, express appreciation. Nothing more than a person saying to someone, hey, thanks for doing this. That's the greatest thing you could ever do for me. You remember those words. Number eight, gladden the heart of a child. Oh, my goodness. Wednesday afternoons and evenings with Ed and Pat at the helm. What a beautiful sight. What a beautiful sight. That it's a Jesus story. Number nine, here we go. A lot of you missed Thelma, this is you. Make or bake something for someone else anonymously. You can bake cookies for me anytime, Miss Thelma. Okay? <laughs> Number ten, listen. A lot of times, keep our mouths quiet and listen. What does God say? Be still. Eleven, speak kindly to a stranger. Number twelve, enter another's sorrow. I've been doing that for ten years. What a blessing. It's called empathy. Thirteen, smile. Laugh a little. Laugh a little more. Fourteen. Lessen your demands on others. Take it easy. It'll get done. Ask nice, nicely, politely. It'll get done. It'll get done. Fifteen, apologize if you were wrong. Another tough one. Sixteen, talk together with the television off. Wouldn't it be great to see the American family 
go back to dinner at the dinner table without a cell phone or a TV to look at or to punch, punch a key with. Amazing how many things can get done face-to-face when a family is together. Amen? 17. Do the dishes for the family. I know you baker boys already do that. I've been down there and saw you do it. (laughs) 18. Give a soft answer, even though you feel strongly. These kids... They get a little unruly. They gotta, hey, calm down. Calm down. Listen to me. Not with an iron fist, but in a good way, a loving way. You'll get a lot more from me. One of my favorites encourage an older person. Encouragement means so much to an older person who has no hope, just a hospital bed. It's, they need hope. Number 20, point out one thing you appreciate about some, someone. Hey, that was really great what you did the other day at such and such a place. That was, that was all right. You, you, you're blessed for that. People need to hear these things. We'd see a whole lot more get done for others if we received a blessing or two from, some, from someone. And then we can tell them, that came from above. It wasn't me. God gave me that. And the last one, offer to babysit for a weary mother. Some of these kids down here, they need that. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's make Christmas one long extended gift of ourselves to others, just like God's great gift of love to us. Israel learned their lesson. We need to learn it, too. Our days are numbered. We need to learn it now. Unselfishly, without announcement, or obligation, or reservation, or hesitation. Now that's what I call a Merry Christmas. Amen. And, I'm sorry, I wasn't, that's an amen there, but let us pray. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And now these three remain, faith, 
hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, because love never fails.